Um, look, firstly, I'd just like to welcome uh, you all to this Beef and Lamb New Zealand Taranaki Farming for Profit webinar. Um, I'd also like to take this opportunity to acknowledge our program funder, Beef and Lamb New Zealand, and our Beef and Lamb New Zealand Extension Manager, Jason Griffin, uh, who is supporting us to run today's webinar. Uh, I'd also like to uh, introduce um, Blair Nelson, um, who is our guest uh, speaker today. Um, but before I hand over to Blair, I'd just like to run through a few, um, I guess, protocols, if you like, regarding um, the webinar today. And I guess, uh, like everybody, we're starting to get more and more used to um, uh, the technology. Uh, but just a reminder that um, when you join us, could you please um, put your system on mute so we don't have uh, sound from your end coming into the um, uh, presentation? and disrupting the, uh, the feed for everybody. Also, if you're having um, issues with buffering, um, one option is to put or to, to turn your video camera off um, and that will improve the situation for you. We will be looking to have this as a, a very interactive uh, workshop. Um, so we're going to be asking on you to contribute questions. Um, at this stage, can you please uh, use the chat box function so if you uh, move your cursor, you'll see a bar at the bottom of your page and it should come up with a chat box there and, um, or a little bubble. If you click on that, you'll be able to write uh, your questions in there and either Jason, uh, Blair or myself will be able to see those and make sure uh, that your questions get asked. Um, depending on how we go, we may actually um, uh, get you to... Um, to ask your own question, um, just in the interest of um, creating your own flavor to that question. If you, for some reason, drop off, um, don't panic. Um, just uh, log back on and you should come back in without any problem. Okay, uh, look, moving forward, um, just wanna, by way of a bit of introduction, um, give you a bit of a background on uh, Blair and Anna's uh, situation. So Blair, and Anna Nelson Farm, 1,100 years at Aria in the King Country. The property is one-third cultivatable, one-third easy hill, and one-third genuine uh, harder hill country. Through the Beef and Lamb New Zealand uh, Innovation Farm Program in 2014-15, uh, they sought to lift the profitability on the cultivatable land by, sorry, on the cultivatable land by $200 per hectare. To do this, they focused on growing specialist forages on the cultivatable country. Initially, they grew plantain, but found the plant did not suit their system. With the aim of getting more clover into their forage crops, the couple grew red clover with the intention of oversowing the crop of plantain once it was established. But the clover grew so well that they chose to leave it as a pure sward. Growing four tonne per hectare of dry matter more than uh, the forage it replaced has generated average post-weaning lamb growth rates of 240 grams per day. While primarily used for lambs, this feed is also used for growing out hoggets and had a profound effect on their farm system, seeing these sheep as two dupes outperform their mixed age ewes in scanning and lambing percentages, as well as in weaning weights. They believe that this focus on feeding sets the potential for the lifetime performance of those hoggets. So we're looking forward to hearing the learnings and insights that they've gathered uh, through this project and since um, this afternoon. And uh, as I say, 
please um, feel free to ask questions. Um, I'm going to hand over to, um, to Blair right now. And Blair, perhaps by way of um, starting off, I guess, could you give us a bit of a, uh, an update, I guess, on where the business is at relative to where it was when you started the program um, four or five years ago? Yep. Okay. Um, hi. I'll obviously, firstly, apologise uh, for my wife not being here today. Um, she's definitely a better communicator than I am, but um, we'll uh, carry on. So I guess I'll just just start um, where at, at Aria, um, 30 metres, the low point of farm is about 30 metres above sea level. The high point's only about 80 or 100 metres above sea level. Um, we're quite dry, a little microclimate for Aria, uh, for the King Country, so we're about 1,300 to 1,800 mils of rain a year. Um, and, yeah, so if you go, the, obviously, five, five years ago was when, we've, when the project finished, um, and we've sort of moved on from then. And apparently, when I've gone back and done a bit of reading, got a bit slacker. Um, we were, the system we were running under the project was 40 hectares of basically Swedes and then into red clover. We... We've got a third of our farmers flats, but probably there's only about 70 hectares of that that is a really nice ash soil that is um, really conducive to cropping. Uh, the rest is croppable, but I just think we thought that uh, doing winter crop on that wasn't sustainable lo longer term. So we've probably dropped the Swedes out of our system, which um, put meant we went didn't have nearly as much winter feed as what we'd had previously under the project. So the red clover was getting carried through the winter by the Swedes and that has, we couldn't do that anymore because we just, the red clover didn't grow enough. So we were not running enough stock effectively. Um, so we have, there's a whole lot of reasons, but effectively we're now in a, in a tall fescue red clover, white clover mix on our on our finishing country, and we just do a real simple um, um, uh, uh, pasture or hunter as a as a summer feed. Um, so, I guess um, <laughs> Greg gave me a couple of outlines, and we we'll go back and try and keep some sort of structure. So the reason we became a, a demonstration farm was because um, all our neighbours, We've, obviously, we've got about 300 hectares that probably at a real push could be a, an, an ugly dairy farm, but it sits right in the middle of my sheep and beef farm, and we really didn't want to do that. So the challenge was to try and make close to what a dairy farmer was making off it without actually converting to dairy. Um, so that, and they took us down to beef and lamb, lamb kindly took a whole lot of us down to um, the South Island and set about showing us some technologies that were challenging us and, and we were quite keen to take take on some of those. Um, so that's where the project came, that's where we came from. Um, right, I guess um, I sort of outline a little bit what, the, what we were, but I guess the main aim for our project was to increase our sheep performance and we chose to do that through the cropping program and the in management of the hills, I guess. And I keep saying, standing up at our field days and saying that we probably achieved our goals on the hills 
in spite of having the cropping program. So it wasn't a direct result of the cropping program that we achieved the results on the hills that we, on the, off the sheep farm that we wanted. Um, so to that, I guess I see it as two, two, two questions. One is sheep, sheep performance and the other is the, is the cropping program um, and how that fits in. So I guess if I try and um, perhaps if we go through the briefly where the crop, cropping system is now and then if we carry on and, and finish on what I think is the more, what we probably got more out of in the, over the course of the project was that, that sheep performance. Um, so obviously we started with we started before we started playing around before the project with um, some plantain. We've done a little bit of chicory. We've done some um, turnips for lamb fattening, and I was, I guess we were we were into into pasture and we were getting reasonably consistent weights off that. I was probably a little bit. When we talked to cropping specialists, they wanted to do two or three years through a crop to to get into really good, clean um, new grasses. And we tried some triticale. We tried a few other winter feeds, oats and, and um, kale. And like I said before, we've got quite a lot of country, or a lot, quite a lot of our flats are actually that heavy clay and the performance we got off those winter crops weren't didn't give us the the results weren't economic in my opinion they were they were hard to manage because we had cattle quite a lot of cattle for a start and it was quite hard to manage on that wet when we get the likes of the likes at the moment we get a wet period um, so we went to plantain and when you my comment is when we go from here to something like Taipei and they say plantain, it's more plantain and clover, whereas we really struggled when we planted plantain and clover, we really only got the plantain. The plantain came out of the ground that fast that it was really just straight plantain. There was a little, only a little wee bit of clover through it. And so we spent a little bit, well, quite a lot of time on our knees, hands and knees and looking at these clovers and trying to establish why we weren't getting the same amount of clover that that the likes of the Hawks, Hawks Bay or Manawatu were getting in their plantain and clover swords. So at the time, Derek Ferguson suggested that we could plant a, a red, red and white clover uh, mix or red clover, but we put a little bit of white in to, to keep the weeds out. Um, and he said that if we planted that, we would. There's no way we'd ever put the plantain over top. It would be that that the relish was the rel, which sorry, relish was the variety of red clover we were planting. And he said if we planted that, there's no way we would come back and put plantain over it because it would just outperform. Um, so on the plantain, without the clover, was quite nitrogen stressed. We got a really bad year of um, clover moth, which took that out. So I was. Just not that happy. So we started with the red clover and it was phenomenal. We did our probably our really good, some of our really good soils and the growth rates we got from the plant and the animals was phenomenal. Um, it really was. I still can still remember it very vividly how impressive it was. Um, I guess as we pushed further through into some of those clay paddocks, it became the variability and, so, and, and establishing the crop got more 
um, which made the performance probably get less as, as time went by. Um, so the other thing is obviously the performance with the hoggets, lambing hoggets on there. So we're using it for finishing lambs and then we're lambing hoggets on it and it was very, very high in protein and that was causing us a few issues. Not that we've sorted that out at all, but we were running at about 10% lamb, uh, hogget deaths on that um, due to bearings and, and, and gross feeding, I suppose. But um, So Anna was very, rightly or wrongly, Anna was very keen to have, I'll blame her because she's not here, um, to put some, uh, uh, what do you call it, another plant in with it to try and get it a little bit less diluted. And obviously I said that we're in a little microclimate here, um, very low below, very low very warm if that makes sense so we're quite keen to plant something that wasn't ryegrass because we get quite a lot of eczema when we do get in the autumn when we get a little bit moisture um, we get a, a really bad eczema so I probably wanted to do something that wasn't ryegrass based um, and so we, we went down the tall fescue option so that's that's sort of what we've been doing since the project we started the probably the last year of the project and have since been going for there so I guess the verdicts, the, the jury's still out on, on the tall fescue because um, we're only getting to the five years now, if that makes sense. And we really wanted the fescue to last to, to last seven years to make it, make it semi-economic, try and push our, our cropping program out to seven years versus five years so we don't have to come back around onto those paddocks quite as fast. Um, so... It sounds like a pretty good um, overview, uh, Blair. Can, I just also wonder, um, can you outline the, the change performance that you've achieved in the in the lambs and the um, the hoggets? I guess lamb growth rates, um, hogget lambing performance, and ewe flock performance as a result of the the program that you've um, embarked on. Yeah, so I guess it was when you go back, and and obviously. <laughs> I had to go back because it's five years ago. I had to go back and read read the the some of the information that we collected and in, in the book and things. And it was extre extremely impressive what weight of hogget we got into. We've probably since the since the for whatever reason since the end of the project we haven't achieved those target weights on those hoggets to the same level. And um, and and which mean which means we haven't got the, the weaning weight of the hoggets. When they're weaning, they're not as heavy as what they were, and obviously the tutus, they're not as heavy as they come into the tutus flock. So that was a big part of what the project was. So um, I was getting quite a rack up last night for my wife for um, having let that slip a fair way from where we where we were. We're not bad, but we're just not at the top end compared to where we were. It was very easy when they were weaning when the hoggets were 65 at um, going basically now going into into lambing that mean we didn't have to do anything for the whole summer for those hoggets whereas the last couple of years it's been quite, uh, obviously a bit like everybody else had a couple of dry years and we've really struggled to get our to do's through to, to a decent weight um, I still go back and blame that mostly on on weaning weight just not getting enough yeah big enough off mum and that flows all the way through but this combination of of obviously that red clover carried on growing through the winter um, so there's a couple of questions there. Uh, we're weaning so, basically. Question is, when, what age are we so weaning at? Where are you going, Blair? I'll stop interrupting. 
Uh, it's all good. So the, one of the questions was, what age were we now at lambs at? So basically between 90 and 100 days, we're pretty conservative on there. Um, obviously the hoggett lambs, yeah, basically 90 to 100 days. Okay. Can you also describe, you know, before you started the Innovation Farm Program, Blair, what was your lambing percentage in the mixed age use? What sort of weaning weight were you getting in the lambs at that time? And uh, generally, what sort of um, sale weights were you getting in your, in your surplus lambs compared to what happened over the, uh, the period of the, the project? And I guess also, what's it relative to now? Yep. Okay. Um, so I think we were starting off at about 135%, something like that. Um, 130 to 140% was um, what well, mixed age, mixed age, and we took that through to sitting at about 150 to 155. Um, that has come back a little bit. I, I guess, copped out and blamed the dry, but I suspect it's just not having our hoggets up to mating weight and that flowing through into our into our into our scanning percentage. Um, <clears throat> As far as hoggets, we floated around that somewhere between 70 and probably 90% um, when we fed them properly and under the project and stuff, we were lambing over 100 to about 110 was the highest we got to. Um, they were more like two deaths than what they are hoggets and unfortunately we haven't been able to carry on and do that to the same extent. Um, yep. Uh, weaning and weight. What about uh, lamb weaning weight? Yep. Yeah. So um, we probably averaged something like around 30 k's, probably 29 to 30 k's before we started. Um, we took that up to the highest average weaning weight was 34 and a half kilos, and that and that it's quite interesting when you when you collect as much data as you did under the project that that flowed through to coincide with with the clover, but also flowed all the way through. So those those lambs that were 34 and a half kilos when we averaged, when we weaned them, they flowed through and, and became like 60, 65 kilo hoggets now. And obviously we achieved 110%. So it's that whole big vicious circle, if that makes sense, by missing out on one of it, we're missing out the whole way through. So we're probably, our weaning weights are probably back down to closer to 32 kilos, something like that now. Um, and the lambing percentages just dropped off a little bit. Um, so is that an interesting one? Because if you go back two years, we had 750 triplet ewes, and we've probably dropped back down now to about 250 triplet ewes. So partly that's, we are talking about the other day, partly I think that's genetic, we've been selecting against triplets. Partly I think it's the fact that we now really manage some of those fat use, some of the condition off some of those fat use. So I think when we looked at our data, some of our use went through and tended to spike into a triplet and then they'd come back off a triplet back down to a twin and then they'd get really almost grossly fed again and sneak back over. Whereas we're probably a lot more, um, a lot better at keeping our, all our use at, in that condition score three to three and a half. So, um, yeah. Right. So, uh, shall I? Um, I'll just go on to how we, um, how, what we 
took out of the project as far as managing the U flock, I goes. I guess I goes. Sorry, goes. Um, so I guess the, one of the key main things we did is we condition score our ewes twice between weaning and mating. And probably we used to have a proportion of those singles and things that came in at, at four plus at, in that period. We were probably a little bit kind of them. We're probably a little bit more ruthless than them now and really not the weight, weight off them. And, and so they, yeah, we do. We really screw the shit out of them so that they come down into that condition score three to three and a half. But equally so, probably those light use, we were before we started the program, we probably um, had a proportion of light use that was there all the way through. And um, Dave Stevens is a big advocate of those really light use, just sell them. Um, we've played around with various things about pushing them on. Probably where we've got to at the moment is I identify them and they lamb in a separate paddock as light use so they don't get mixed back through the mixed day, the big condition use. So even, you know, we'll pull them out at, at scanning and then we'll pull them out again as we set stock and they'll go into a separate paddock so the light use all lamb in a light use paddock versus getting pushed through with a with a medium use because i believe that makes more difference in drenching and yeah it's just a, that, that lack of competition and we tend to sell more of those lighter uses as, as the season goes through um so matings resume standard um Condition score at scanning. How long are you leaving? How long are you leaving the ram out for over the mating period, um, Leah? Uh, we do do a third cycle, but mostly just tail up with terminal sire on the third cycle. And there's bugger all that. Are, to be fair, there's not that many ewes that are coming back in that third cycle. Um, yeah. And and what's your feeding regime? What sort of intake are you trying to get them to achieve over that period, or is it just more about um, uh, residual grazing height or what, what is it you're looking at over the mating period to, to ensure that they um, scan as high as possible? Yeah, well, so I guess we're not, we're not actually targeting to scan as high as possible. We want to, we want to even that out. So I guess um, before we started the project, we probably flushed all our ewes and now we don't flush, well, sorry, don't flush any, but there's probably really targeted, there's probably only out of the, I think we're running about three, six ewes now. There's probably about 600 ewes that were um, sub between two and a half and, and three condition score. So they were obviously prioritised fed and, and flush, but all the rest are basically on maintenance. So we, we save ourselves a lot of feed in that autumn period because they're really just on maintenance. So the likes of this last year, we actually had all the ewes on silage. We were that dry. So... Um, yeah, they ate trees for six weeks and then they ate silage for six weeks and then they went back and discovered what a grass plant was. Um. Okay, sorry. Um. Oh, sorry, I didn't get that question, Greg. Oh, sorry, I just said, uh, sorry, carry on with what you were describing oh. before I interrupted you. Okay. So I guess it goes through. So when we scan, we um we age we age, get the the scanner to age age our use. So they, he breaks them into four into four groups, and then um obviously we pull the singles off at scanning, and the tri we pull the lighter triplets off 
And so they go in with a lot, anything. So we basically run all use on condition score, but all we do is give the triplets another condition score on the on the twins, and they go in the same mobs. Um, we run them through, and then start set stocking them on their age dates. So basically, um, that's why scanning, I was saying before that uh, set stocking is probably one of my busier times of the year. It just seems to take for, it's like a month of, of mucking around. Um, so we've got quite, half our farmers basically northerly and half is southerly. So all the early lambing ewes go through that, so the northerly face and all those southerly lambing ewes go through the, through the back half. Um, it's not 100% accurate, the scanner. Um, but it's it's enough to make a difference. So we get to to prioritise feed those ewes as their as their feeding comes as they're coming getting closer to the lamb. So I guess that was a that was something that we got out of the project. Just how much more we had to increase their feed as they as they ran into set stocking. So I guess the other thing that we really targeted is that fourteen hundred cover under our tr twins and and twelve hundred under our sing under a under a single singles and I. I was telling um, Greg before that I can remember being really, really annoyed after after the first year of the project. So we identified that we hadn't didn't have enough cover under the use at set stocking, and so we set about using Farmax and and a whole lot of tools like nitrogen and um, and just yeah, Farmax, but basically making sure we had enough cover to go through, and then nitrogen. So we auto nitrogen and we spring nitrogen. And I can remember sitting up on the hill with a as a team sitting up there and and being really really annoyed, really disappointed because I'd done the whole years effectively, and this was what I was getting measured on was this the average cover at fourteen hundred, and I I was about. 1250 or something like that so I managed to put 50 cover extra on for a whole year's work and I was and basically when I do farm pasture covers I'm probably 100 covers is here or there if that makes sense I can't tell you whether it's 1300 or 1400 it's, it's a bit of variation so I can remember being very annoyed at the fact that that for that whole year I'd worked to try and get another 100 cover and I really hadn't managed to do it I guess the following year we did manage to get that extra cover and obviously got the bigger weaning weight. So um, yeah, that's, that's, I guess the importance of cover now was, is probably was really brought home to me in the project. Um, so with those covers, Blair, was there a noticeable difference in the lamb weaning weight between those two, two years where you got 1250 yeah. and then to 1400? So what yes, was the difference? Was. I think the year before was, I think we averaged 32 and a half and then we jumped up to 34 and a half. So it was two kilos, effectively two kilos of live weight across. Um, and I think the survival on that year dropped up, jumped up as well. So it was like a hunt. We jumped up 10% survival and, um, and two kilos of live, like, like two kilos of live lamb live weight across the whole flock. So, um, yep, it's, it would appear to be resume, uh, Good investment, but it's not as easy as it's not as easy as it sounds. It's yeah, obviously. Otherwise, I'd be doing it every year, and I'm not. So, um, yeah, yeah. But I guess that does also go to underpin that you know getting that cover right is critical to um, that high level of sheep productivity, uh, and and it probably takes a little bit more than you uh, you anticipate to actually achieve it. So a lot of hard work goes in. Yep, and that's right. I definitely think it's it's that is 
it is it is a really big thing, and I guess that's part of the issue is that when when we did that, we probably had all our cows sitting on Swedes, and we've now chosen not to have Swedes in our system. So where we where our cows go is obviously uh, is a cost on the system, if that makes sense, and. Um, we have done a few various things with them, but basically they're now getting set stocked over the over the ewes right now, and covers are looking pretty good out there at the moment. So, um, yeah. And what rate are you set stocking those cows over the ewes at, uh, Blair? Uh, we're at 0.6 of a cow to the hectare at the moment on our ewes. But where our ewes are at a, slot, a reasonably slot, low stocking rate, so they're at um, twins are at five point three to the hectare, and um, yeah, and, and point six of a cow, or, or cow equivalent. So I run the yearling heifers over them as well, first calves over them as well, um, and a few steers just to get the to spread them out. Um, Okay. Hey, look, just before we go any further, there are a few questions down the uh, the side there that people have put forward. Um, so, look, I just thought uh, we might take some time to go through there, uh, through them. Um, uh, just looking at those. Uh, first one from Jason there. Did you work out why the white clover was so slow to establish? Yes and no. Um, the answer is that if we plant ryegrass or plantain, sorry, it's very noticeable having planted clover and fescue because fescue is very slow to establish as well. And so the clover gets away in the fescue at the same time because it's just how long it takes to establish versus I think, I don't know what it is, whether the whether it's the temperature or, or what happens, but it's, it is definitely any ryegrass or plantain becomes very dominant without a, without a really low sowing rate. So it's just so fast out of the ground compared to the clover. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, another one here. I think we've already uh, addressed this one. What age are you weaning your lambs? Um, I, I think you said about 90 to, to 100 days. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So very conservative in that okay. regard at this stage. Uh, another one from Jared here. Why do you think that you have not been able to get the hoggets up to the weights you had under the program? Okay. I, I think it goes back to, I, I believe a lot of it goes back to that weaning weight. The fact that we've, the weaning weight of those ewes is, is, is not up there. And so that's flowing through that two or three kilos is flowing all the way through our system. And, and, that just means they're a little bit smaller. They just don't grow as quite as fast. They're a little bit more, less robust all the way through. Um, obviously, probably we're running less crop area, if that makes sense. We've wound the crop area back and obviously a slight change in, in crop area. But um, yeah, it's, those would be the two key factors. Yeah, just on the, the hoggets there, what... Um, what weight were you mating the hoggets at prior to the uh, the Innovation Farm program? What did you get them up to during the program, and and what do they go to the ram at this year? Uh, so, 
I think we started, we were always minimum of 40 kilos and they went much over that when we before we started. Um, the highest weight we've averaged is about 48 kilos in the program and um, they were sort of sort of consistently 46 to 48 for a couple of years there. This last year they were uh, 44 I think was what they were. Um, but we didn't make anything under, we've lifted the bottom weight to 42 kilos. So we didn't make anything under 42 kilos. Yep. So just, right. yep. I, okay. I don't want to go back and talk to too many of the people on my team because I get a big, big uh, growl for not doing what I'm supposed to do. So. Okay. Okay. We've got another one here and it's from iPhone. Uh, so whoever iPhone is, um, do you vaccinate five and one at tailing and, and booster to protect them from, uh, protect them for the high performing pasture? Uh, so the short answer is we do uh, have done, if that makes sense. So um, it, mostly the answer is yes, we do five and one them at, 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 at docking and then again at weaning. Um, not all of them, if the ones that are not going to go on, the ones that are not going to go on a crop that are not going to grow as fast as that, we probably tend not to. The replacement ones we do just as, as because that's a good thing to get done. So um, just to try and spread our vaccines out as much as anything. But it did appear to make, when we first, when we were really cracking those top, top weights off, yes, it was a good idea. Okay. And another question here from uh, from Jared. Was it seasonal, the change in the second year, or did you change something? I think that must be in reference to the increase in pasture cover from 1250 to 1400. Um, I think it was just a, a continued focus on that, that in the first year, I guess I thought I'd done a lot of things to change, if that makes sense. But in reality... We had, we just didn't we didn't make it happen enough if that makes sense. I guess I tell a story about um, I hate computers. Like my I swear more at my computer than what I do at my dogs, and uh, I can swear at my dog. And um, so one of the thing one of the technologies that we we took on board during the project was to do Farmex. So I'd actually been using Farmex for a wee while, but I hadn't been. Um, I guess being held to account about it, so I would just tend to a little bit let it um, let it run, so it was not not balancing. And one of the one of the deals in the project was that I had to make sure Farmex was always always correct. And I agreed to do it. And I thought by because we're collecting so much data, I thought if I collected the data, I could prove that Farmex was a waste of bloody time, and then I could drop Farmex and not have to use Farmex. But the reality was, every time I went to measure anything and put out how many lambs are going to wean, and the Farmex would put the data into Farmex, and it would come back and tell me that's what we were going to wean. And so I was just, it just, it pissed me off to be fair, because it was I have to use it. I have to use it now because I couldn't fault the data that we were, with what data we were putting in, it was a very, very accurate model. So um, I guess I got a little bit lost, but I suppose um, I think it is a very valuable tool that we uh, effectively took, took on board for the four and believe we probably managed our covers more through Farmax to make sure that we did actually get 1400 cover. Yeah. 
Okay. Hey, well, look, some good questions there. And look, just encourage um, you all to um, keep those coming along uh, in that chat box there. Um, I guess if we just reflect back, we'll go back now, um, Blair, we were talking about, um, you know, you set stocking rates and what have you around lambing time. Um, how does the season or your management um, move on from, from set stocking through to, uh, to weaning? Uh, yep. Okay. So we're basically set stocked. Um, so we run two flocks. A, well, we used to run two flocks. We run a few more than two flocks now because uh, my wife and I are having a little competition. She's running a Merino cross and I'm running a Walkshire cross. And, but if we say we run two flocks, a terminal and a maternal, basically the maternal ones, they get docked and then they come back in for a drench and a, and a vex of uh, drench and a dip before Christmas and before in the, before weaning and then they get weaned. The terminals don't, we dock the triplets and, and we dock the two terminals. The rest we don't dock. So we just bring them in, in um, three weeks out from, from weaning, dip, drench them, um, dip them. And then they go, most of those go on the truck. So on average, our terminals would be, at least two kilos heavier than our maternals on uh, 10 years worth of data, probably. Um, so that's, we go through, do that. Um, we used to, to EID at docking. Uh, we have got gone back to where we were just doing it at, at weaning. Um, we probably will go back and the main reason was to try and reduce how much we're spending on EIDs. So if by weaning time we've selected, actually not, it's probably, yeah, we select slightly more selection pressure on the ULAM so we don't have to tag so many, but we probably will go back and tag a few more this year just so we can, tr we can tr trace them through. Um, we wean and then predominantly the hoggets and the triplet lambs go on to the summer crop and the rest, the ewe lambs go through the hills, back onto, onto the hills and the, um, the rest of the sale lambs go, get spread out through the flats. So I guess we uh, obviously, as far as worms go, we tend to drench now and then put them back on the hills. Even the ones I said that went onto the crop, we tend to put them back onto the hill and pick up some refugia worms on them. So we tend to drench the whole lot, put them all back on the hill for between four and five days, and then they'll go onto the crop. And probably that's, oh, the reason for that is we used to get quite a lot of barbers pole at the end of our crop rotation. So we go through, it didn't matter what worms, what crop we had at the end of, by March, we'd get a quite a spike and, and get a, a barber's pole issue. Whereas now having put the refuser and taking a few worms onto those, onto the crops, we tend not to get a barber's pole issue right in the late on those crops. Um, and then obviously we just trickle lambs onto the crop as, and push them off as fast as we can. We will, Depending, always put a, the obviously, obviously had the triplets and the and the hoggett lambs on the ewe lambs on the crop, and then we'll put put a few more lighter ewe lambs on there to push them along as well. Yep. Okay, 
And and just I guess uh, for everybody's benefit, when are you putting the uh, the ram out to the ewes and into the, the hoggets, just so they get a, a an idea of the the time frames around uh, farm activities. Uh, so first of April, this April for the main for the use, uh, and um, we've actually gone back to about the twenty fifth of April for the hoggets. Sorry about that. And you mentioned Sorry. you mentioned. Um, Okay, uh, you mentioned that your third cycle using a terminal sire. Do you uh, what percentage of the flock, uh, or do you have part of the flock that goes to a terminal sire um, as such? And and is that those those use mated at the same time as the mixed age? Yeah, that's that's right, Greg. So we do. We have about fifty, just just on about fifty percent of the use go to a terminal sire, and they go at the same time um, as the as the mixed as the Terminal uh, maternal ones as well, so they all go to the ram at the same time, and then all we do is lighten off the rams for that third cycle and put terminals out with everything. And so that means at the moment we still end up with a few hoggets going to maternals because we're just short enough of rams. We were first of May mating the hoggets, but I've brought that tried to bring that forward because we tend to get a real really see that flush of feed as those hobbits are waiting to lamb, if that makes sense. So they just, we're, we're still very, still getting 10% wastage on our, in our hoggets and thought that maybe if we bought the mating, mating forward on them, they wouldn't get quite so many bearings. Um, but that's still second year doing that. And we didn't seem to make any difference last year at all. So it's, that's still a very big cost in our system. Okay, and uh, we've got um, Harewood's um, put a question there. What percentage of lambs uh, off at weaning time? I presume that's uh, drafted prime. Um, so, what sort of numbers are you getting off and what weight? Uh, yep, I was going to um, this last year. Um, so, we got. 36% was off mum this last season at 17 kilos. Um, so we probably would normally, we'd normally come down a bit lighter on that, normally kill down closer to 15 and a half kilos and get rid of a few more, but obviously space was extremely tight this last this last year. So, um, yep. Uh, but I would say that's about... That's pretty standard. So it's probably closer to, on the maternals, it's probably closer to um, 60% on the, on the terminal lambs. And it's quite low on the maternals to the point where if we're really squeezed as far as time goes, we probably don't even bother um, putting the white face, go drafting the white face let use. You know, it might be 100 or 150 out of them. Um, it's it's really, we do, but it's more of a hassle than what it is compared to the terminals. Yeah. Right. And look, just, uh, I know people will be interested to know, what's uh, the terminal side breed that you're using? Uh, we've been using Primeras and now it's um, Landcorp Supreme is what, we, is what we're using. Hmm. Right. 
Okay, and look, um, I guess I just really want to, uh, you know, encourage you all to, uh, to ask other questions or more questions. Um, earlier on, um, and I, I guess you've talked a little bit about about it um, through your, your discussion, Blair, we're talking about fine-tuning. Um, where do you see that, that whole, the value or the, the importance of attention to detail and, and what you're achieving? Yeah, so I guess I alluded to it a little bit before with PharmX, but I guess that was the other part when we had a, when we had, but we're part of the innovation farm, we had a team of people here. So you were having quarterly meetings and you had to, you basically had to report to a board effectively. And that discipline was extremely good because you couldn't effectively let slip people. Well, for me, having to report to someone meant I had to get it done. And, and that was, that was a very good discipline. I guess I just think that if you look, if I look back now and have, have, this has been a good process to do that, it is just a little wee bit. So it's not, my system isn't that different to what it was. It's just the, the detail, just managing that to the, to, to that, that high performance is just about those little things all the way through. And I guess, um, that is a hard thing to keep doing on all the time to get your systems in place to make it happen. And obviously we're still missing out on about 15% at the moment because we're just not quite ticking all those boxes. And I guess it's, I guess it's, I use the example of, you know, before the project we were using transit lines every second year. Um, during the project we went to full saw testing of, of all our paddocks and, and making sure those transit lines worked up with those saw testing and, you know, I guess that's the difference between being close and, and, and probably just really maximising our fertiliser spend. Um, so it's just, it's in everything. It's not one particular thing. It's right across the, right across the board. So, you know, we use um, variable rate spreading of, of the fertiliser on, on, our, on our hills and our flats. Um, does that answer some of the question, Greg? Yeah, look, I think so. I guess it's really just, you know, what are the, the little bit of the extra things that you you possibly were challenged to do through that program, which you, you've carried on. And I guess it leads into another question. You know, you mentioned the use of EID tags uh, before. Um, how are you using EID and um, uh, what's uh, the value that you're getting out of, out of it at the moment? Or do you see this as something that uh, is going to build into the future? Yeah. Um... I guess we've had EID for a long, long time, and the value proposition is is still uh, a big question. Um, I guess we scan it. We scan it. Um, we scan at you put the information when we scan on the EID against the EID tag, and so we are pulling a few U's out to go to the B flock that are, have raised singles for three years in a row. If that makes sense, so they we are using that information to kick them out. Um, we obviously a little bit use it for drafting those U's off and recording what's going on with them, but I'm still find it a little bit frustrating because I've got six sets of satellite yards and having the EID reader and stuff set up and all those is not as easy as it can be. So I still probably prefer the visual tag. Um, obviously going forward, maybe the fact we can't use, if all ever gets to be worth something again, maybe we can use EID to, to um, identify those age group use instead of 
putting rattle on the back of the sheep's wool. Uh, but um, we did do a lot of it. During the project, we had they Dave's used the data to look back and see how our tudus versus our how our hoggets performed as tudus and mixed age ewes and followed that data backwards. And there was some really good information that we got out of that. But as a farmer, um, once the principle's been established, probably the actual on-farm data is 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 um, questionable. So I guess for us, we're in it and we're just doing it every year. So it's not a big cost. Um, I probably, unfortunately, can see us where we, where all our sheep will have to be IOD'd for market access at some point in time. But um, I think that's still wee way off at this stage. Okay, so we've got another couple of questions come through and I guess it relates to um, the financial outcomes from the, um, the program. Uh, what was the lift in GFI per hectare under the new system or the evolved system through the Innovation Farm program? And and did you reach the $200 hectare increase for profit that you had set as a target? Yeah, um, the short, short answer is yes, we did. Um, did. It came close to that $200. Obviously, we were a bit short because at the point when the project ended in 2015, land prices weren't quite as good as what they have been since, if that makes sense. So we, in performance, when we, when we use Farmax to model how we're going to do the project, we achieve the, we achieve the physical performance on farm to get the dollars per hectare. But the reality was for those couple of years, the land price wasn't as good as it could have been. So we technically did all the physical data, but didn't actually get the performance. Whereas it's probably flipped over a little bit in the last couple of years where we've actually done not quite as good a performance, but the price has been better. So we've actually achieved it that way around. So um, does that answer the question? I believe so. Yep. Uh, again, look, uh, just to open this up uh, for others to, to ask questions. Um, I'm sure you've all got something that you want to ask. Um, I guess one of the, the things that's pretty um, pertinent to, uh, to everybody at the moment are some of the new regulations that are out there. Have you taken time to consider what the new freshwater uh, regulations will mean for, for what you do on your farm and, and will they be of uh, any real significance? Uh, yep. So I guess um, we have been doing... Uh, we've had a farm plan here for 2006. I think we did our first farm. I did my first farm plan and, and did an overseer budget then and have been running through on a, a program to address water issues and stuff since then, um, which means the likes of we plant a, at least 190 to 250 poplar and willow poles a year on our whole country. And we usually try to to single wire fence off drains on our better flats and flat country, um, probably close to 10 or 15, maybe 15 to 20 hectares a year that we do that. So we're, we're a long way down what I believe is that down that track. Um, as far as the cropping program, we've obviously changed from a winter, winter being a very winter, winter, uh, Swedes in the winter to being more of a summer crop. So I think as far as the legislation goes, we're, we're happy with that scenario. Obviously, we're still just struggling to get our sheep performance back up to what it was before under that, under that change in, in scenario, if that makes sense. Um, so 
I don't see it being a really big um, change to to our system here, if that makes sense. Um, So would it be fair to say then, Blair, that you know, whilst the, uh, the program was focused on uh, sheep performance and, and forages, um, I guess some of the, 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 the learning process through that was a better understanding of the resources that you, you've had on farm and how you've, I guess, in respect to soils and, and topography, and, and that's, that's evolved as part of that as well over the time? Yeah, it is. And that was, I guess that's a good part about being part of that team was and I guess being part of the team was we were they all had their specialties and they all made you sit down and really think about how that related to to your farm if that makes sense so that whole thing about what crop was out there and what what ate it what made it grow so we're still using some of that the likes of on our we use potash early on our with nitrogen, we use potash as well as nitrogen and, and to kick our spring away now, which was some of the work that we did with the clover, trying to bring our clover production forward. And so it's all those all those kind of things, if that makes sense. So I guess that was one of my, we're talking about what it is, one of the take-home messages, and that was, you know, get a get a team that you trust and um, that are, that, that come on farm and and spend some time actually making get get on your hands and knees and look at what's going on in your in your system. Um. Okay. I guess Greg, the only other comment I've got is probably obviously we've touched on my my hoggets and their and their mate and their weight. If I guess if that makes sense, and I still. I still firmly believe that those hoggets that aren't up to weight are better off not mated and, and get a, a bit of a free freer ride through to become tutus and be decent tutus. So obviously we're putting a few less to the ram than what we used to because they're not as heavy as what they were, but they're, in reality those are ones coming through and are still are still performing as a tutus versus, you know, so if you're not in a situation where you're cropping, then the answer is, Perhaps the simple answer is don't make your hoggets, just make sure they get up to be decent weights, speed two dudes, I guess is is one of one of one of the take home messages that we got from the project that it doesn't matter how you get to your two dudes weight, just make sure you do get to your two dudes weight. Yeah. And um I, I guess uh one of the okay, um in terms of that whole hoggit performance and, and what have you or the decision to make Made hoggets. I'm assuming that was well before you became farmer of uh, farmers. Um, in terms of the resource, you know, you, you talk about a third of the farm being cultivatable country, a third being easy hill, and a third being harder hill. So, 11 odd hectares. What level of subdivision have you got on the on the farm? Just so, uh, and, and I guess yeah, average Olsen peas and and soil fertility. Just so people get a a better picture of that because. I guess one of the, 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 the points I would make is that you've got to have the resource available to, um, uh, to mate hoggets effectively. And if you, if you don't have uh, all the resources in place, then as you say, you're better to focus on getting them up to a two-tooth weight than, than trying to get them up to a, a hogget mating weight and not doing it successfully. So, yeah, are you able to um, give us an outline on, on average soil fertility and, and subdivision? Uh, yep. So average soil fertility is probably um, so we all the flat countries all all soil test to 150 mils 
and that sits between 25 and 30p um, potash sevens um, sulfurs uh, just low just just below optimum if that makes sense coming out of the out of the winter um, on the hills pH is sitting at about 5.8 um, P's are still sitting over 20s um, K's are fine and sulfur is slightly lower on that on that clay country um, as far as subdivision goes our hills are about 640 odd hectares is what we call our hill country for lambing on and um, that's set up and we run it in very a little bit we used to run it always in three winter rounds we've changed that and run it in oh sorry in four winter rounds we now change it change that round and run it in five winter rounds really tried to um, to make our paddocks sizes the same for those rounds so they spend the same amount of the paddocks are very easy even size so we've just put another round in there and, and that seems to have made the transition through to weaning uh, to set stocking a lot easier having another mob of another mob we always had four and then we came to scanning we always end up with a five mobs and it wasn't didn't quite fit in our system so we just changed that um, most of those rounds would have probably i'm guessing um probably 15 paddocks, I'm saying. Yeah, probably 15 paddocks because they'll all go out to a 60-day round at 1st of May on four, on no more than four days in a paddock. So they must have at least 15 paddocks in those in those rounds. But they might actually have some of them might be closer to 20 paddocks in those, in those four rounds in the hills. Uh, as far as the flats go, they're, they're all pretty well subdivided up. So we tend to tend to have them in reasonably in sheeps in reasonable size sheep paddocks and then get split up and with single permanent single wires for cattle and then broken down further for for winter cells. Um, yep. And trough water in ninety eight percent of the ninety eight percent of the farm and good good infrastructure as far as satellite yards go um, in most places now. Great, thank you. And look, you also mentioned um, that you're using tall fescue in there as a companion species with the, the clover. Um, you, you say the verdict's still out on it in terms of its longevity. In terms of its overall grazing management, how challenging have you found it relative to, um, to ryegrass manage? Extremely, extremely challenging compared to ryegrass. Ryegrass is very forgiving and, and um, but it's been quite dramatic the last couple of years with the dry. We're still the, I think it's a dry, but I think it's actually the heat as much as anything that we're seeing that tall fescue is still growing through that autumn period for us. Whereas a ryegrass just doesn't, doesn't disappears, doesn't grow it. Sorry, disappears. It, it sort of gets rust or gets eczema. It doesn't grow very fast. And then all of a sudden it's away and it gets, gets away in the autumn. So um, look, I don't, I probably don't recommend people going down to a fescue. It's that same thing. Um, you need to have enough area to make it worthwhile. It's um, it's a totally different beast to try and manage. And um, we've 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 had our flops on that as well, if that makes sense. Lambing triplet ewes and stuff like that. We had I don't know why it is, but we had a phenomenal amount of cast ewes on it when we were lambing triplet ewes on it. Um, so it's not. There, I don't think it's the same old, same old, Greg. There is no free lunch. It's 
just got to find something that yep. works for you and, and go. So at the moment, it seems to work for us with an Audubon calf system um, going on there. So I guess that's that's part of the reflection of changing from being having a whole lot of Swedes with a whole lot of two-year-old bulls on it. Having taken them off, we needed some younger younger class, more efficient efficient mob of cattle to be able to to utilise that feed when it got going. So we've changed from being a two-year-old system into an autumn-born system, and that seems to seems to fit quite nicely at the stage. Okay. Oh, and I see we've got another question there from uh, from iPhone. Uh, what drove your choice for summer crop variety? I think you mentioned pasture and hunter before. Yep. So I guess it's back to being. Um, uh, so I was really good under the under the innovation farm program. I was very very well supported, and everything was very timely. But um, to be a cropping farm you have to be very very precise and probably um, I struggle a little bit with that and we probably struggle with that establishment of crop in the early spring we get can get good rain through till about the 15th or the 20th of October and then we get dry and the establishment of crop in that period of time is is really quite hard work and so the likes of a dirty old brassica hunter or, or, or pasture is very robust if that makes sense you seem it grows on the sandpaper sandpaper so um yeah okay great um and from sam and hannah can you run us through the details of your bull system and how it is incorporated with the cropping program yeah so i guess um lambs go onto the onto the hunter for the summer comes out and gets planted back in tall fescue clover for the winter um, so we usually take the first grazing of that with our beef heifers and then they tend to start as, as the spring warms up they tend to start getting bloat and die on that so we tend to chuck them out on the hills and then put um, autumn by autumn calves and and put autumn calves through that first first um, spring with a few beef bulls to tidy up behind those um, autumn-born sort of alternate grazing calves and then autumn-born beef bulls alternate grazing through that spring and then those as a summer as we get after Christmas those beef bulls get killed in January and those autumn-borns tend to come through and run through in in bigger mobs on that on that younger tall fescue Um, and so yeah that's sort of how it works so basically it's a real the summer crop is for is for lambs, and that young fescue is for for the bull calves. Um, we've tried having lambs on the on those new pastures, but I, for whatever reasons, with the lambs just like the clover so much, they'll take the clover out of those new grasses for us. Mm. Okay, great. Um, look, I'm just conscious of time and, and uh, have noticed that a couple of people have actually um, dropped off, obviously uh, needing to get away and do other things. So I'm just wondering perhaps if we look to try and wrap things up. And, and um, I guess a question for you, um, Blair, you know, what are the, the three to five key messages that uh, I guess you learnt um, through the program and uh, would like to convey to the, uh, to the audience um, today? Uh, so I guess that was one of the ones was I wrote down in, in the project and I went back and read the ones I'm at the end of the project and what I still think now and I guess that's that 
target two to topping weight. Doesn't matter how you get there, but make sure you get your two to there. Um, can focus on body condition score and your use, and and manage them accordingly. Um, and that thing about finding measuring what what's important. So obviously for me, that's Farmex and, and measuring the stuff that I need to, to make Farmex work so I can, that tool. Um, obviously we're very guilty of measuring a whole lot of things in the, in the, in the project and um, keep that simple. Um, obviously get a team that's, that you, that you appreciate and, and spend time on the farm. And I guess make a plan, write it down and, and stick to it. So I think that's probably all I've got, Greg. Okay, great. There's some really good points there. Just to reiterate, target to do tupping weight, focus on the uh, body condition score, measuring what you can manage and make use of, um, get a team around you and make a plan and, and work towards it. I guess in terms of that team, um, look, you've got 1,100 hectares, quite a, a sizable operation. Um, who's in your, your on-farm team? Yourself, Anna, who else? Uh, yep, so Anna's, Anna's now away doing um, a whole lot of work for the local uh, local sub-catchment group. So she does two hours, an hour, probably an hour in the morning each morning doing stock work. Um, I've got two younger guys that are, that are with me at the moment. So one's... A, Year 13, technically year 13 at school, um, but it's but working for me full, full time. The other guy's second, he's in his second year here, so straight out of school, so he's 18 or something like that. Um, and then my, I'm very, we're very lucky that my parents are still farming. Um, so they, uh, dad's turning 80 this year and mum's 78. And so they still wander out and shift a bit of stock around for me. So that's pretty cool. And then we're just signing up with, uh, um, future farmers for next year to get a, a school lever, I guess. So that's and then I've got a an older guy that does care, uh, that does three days a week um, repairs and maintenance. Yeah. So. Okay, great. Thank you. I think it shares uh, the the wider picture with everybody about you know how you you actually cope with managing um, the operation that you do. So. Um, it's all part of that resource uh, that you've, you've got. Um, look, I, I think uh, unless there's any other questions, um, we will um, we'll look, look up. And I just want to share a couple of slides with you. Um, so just bear with me for a second uh, while I get these up. Um, and I want to go to that one there. Uh, there we go. So look, what you should be seeing in front of you now there is another slide. It's got um, a couple of links on it. So um, look, take a screenshot of that or whatever you want to, or take a photo of it with your camera, whatever. Um, those are uh, links to um, a video clip of Blair and Anna and their Innovation Farm program uh, on the Beef and Lamb New Zealand website. There's also a link there to the uh, Innovation Farm booklet um, for the period 2012 to 16, which has also got information on Blair and Anna's uh, Innovation Farm program. So uh, you can find all that information, as I say, on Beef and Lamb New Zealand's website. Um, I think it's under the Knowledge Hub, and uh, Jason, you may be able to correct me if I'm wrong there. Um, look, the, uh, the other thing that um, I want to... Oh, why isn't that working? Hang on just a second, please.
Oh, some contact details here. Look, the challenge for, for everybody that came on today, um, what are the key messages or insights that you've learned today? Uh, what will you do differently on farm as a result of this uh, webinar? Uh, what will you discuss with your business slash life partner? Um, why have I put that there? Because I know as a farm consultant that uh, it's not just one person that makes the, uh, the, the decisions um, on a, in a farm business, it's generally uh, two or more. So I also know that um, when you discuss uh, something that you've listened to or heard, uh, like our webinar today, or key points within it, uh, with somebody that's important in your business, you will actually tease out things that are become even more important to you and reasons why you, you, you may want to um, pursue something in particular. Um, what is the, the key action you will undertake within four weeks of this seminar? So, you know, note something down and, and challenge yourself to uh, come back in four weeks' time and action it. Um, and then also think about what additional support you need to make things happen. Now, it's interesting... Um, Blair talked about um, having a, a team around him um, to help drive the, um, uh, the innovation farm program on his property and the, the, the success that he achieved through it. Uh, and it's really important that um, you take time to make sure that, um, you know, if you're going to make some changes uh, and, and you want to improve things, that you get people around you, whether it's a, another farmer that you respect or uh, an industry professional, whether it's your bank manager, your accountant, um, farm consultant, fertilizer rep, agronomist, whatever, to help you make those uh, uh, changes that you want to. So um, I'll just take time to, um, to think about those five points there and um, yeah, note things down and um, come back and address them later. Um, look, that's really um, everything I want to cover off today. Um, and, and really want to thank uh, Blair for, for your time and input. Um, and, yeah, look, you've got 30 seconds if you've got a, a final question that you want to answer, uh, want, want answered. Um, otherwise, we will sign off. So, um, yeah, is, uh, I guess if we use that 30 seconds, uh, Jason, is there anything you want to um, comment from, um, from Beef and Lamb's perspective while people might get their last uh, questions in? Hey, no, nothing too much from me, Greg. That's, it's been quite an interesting process just listening to Blair and um, it sounds like it's probably been quite good for them as well to sort of go back and revisit, uh, you know, the program and what they were doing, their performance and stuff like that. So it's, it's really pleasing seeing what's, you know, come out of that Innovation Farm program and, um, yeah, just letting people know, like sharing those resources that are there on the Knowledge Hub, um, you know, to be able to access those and be able to spread those learnings out over everyone else. So. But no, I've really enjoyed it. Thank you. Okay. Well, it looks like um, there's a few um, thank yous coming through the uh, the chat now, Blair. Um, so no more new questions. So look, I think we'll call it a day there. Um, so look, thank you very much uh, to everybody for your um, your time, contribution, and and joining us. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. And once again, Blair, for for um, taking the time out of your busy schedule. Um, and you'll be able to report back to Anna that it all went well and, and you got some good positive <laughs> feedback, um, judging by the, um, the comments coming through. So um, well done. Thank you.